Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. So, it's been quite a week. And one of the things I thought very soon after the election returns came in was that I wanted to hear from some smart people who can tell us how we got here and then what the road ahead looks like. These are folks that have mostly been hidden from the spotlight during the campaign. Andrew McAfee was one of the people who would sometimes pop into my mind when I was listening to stump speeches on TV or the debates. He's talked for a long time, including on this show, about the idea of jobs disappearing. And I'm not just talking about jobs going to other countries, but jobs disappearing because of robotics and automation. But on the trail, the candidate seemed to almost completely ignore the data reality that he's been tracking for years. McAfee is a principal research scientist at MIT, and he's the co-author with Eric Brynjolfsson of The Second Machine Age, which was about this very phenomenon. We reached him in Lisbon at a conference, and he said he was struck by the exit polls that we've all been combing through since the election. When they asked people what the biggest issue was in the election or the thing they were most looking for in a candidate, almost 40 percent of the people said the ability to bring change was the most important thing they were looking for. And no surprise, uh, over 80 percent of the people said Donald Trump was the better candidate for that. His whole campaign was based around just shaking up the status quo deeply. And when I look at that, I imagine there are two things going on. One is this huge dissatisfaction that we have in general with institutions, everything from Congress to Wall Street to elections themselves. The turnout for this election was amazingly low. And maybe Silicon Valley is going to be included in that list of institutions that people don't trust anymore. The second thing that I really feel is going on, the kind of change people want is not the kind that we're getting. We're not living in a low-change environment. There are these science fiction technologies coming at us. The economy is being reshaped. There's a lot of change going on. I, I think what people might actually be yearning for is nostalgia, is a return to some flavor of good old days where there wasn't so much change, and when the economy was full of those great middle-class American jobs, which happened in factories, in offices full of clerks, and really built up the American middle class, I sense a yearning to go back to that period, and unfortunately, that's just not going to happen. So, you know, this idea of, um, as you said, factories having fewer people in them, a lot of it being roboticized or automated, and that that doesn't feel like the days when there were a lot of good, solid jobs that you could do with a high school education. Why was that not a part of the discussion in this election? I, I, I can't think of one question, and maybe I missed it, maybe I'm not remembering it, but I can't think of one question in a debate about like, gee, all these jobs are being automated. What problems does that create? What are you, presidential candidates, going to do about that? 
I think that all got subsumed into another explanation for all the jobs went, which is the immigrants took them and we exported them overseas. So the technology discussion, I agree, didn't really happen, but we absolutely had a jobs discussion. It was just missing a big part of the equation and the solutions being proposed were not going to work very well. Now, even if President Trump somehow succeeds in bringing back lots of manufacturing activity to the states, he can point to that. Those factories are just not going to be full of people doing classic middle-class American jobs at middle-class American wages. The products they produce would be completely uncompetitive. So do you feel like uh, the notion of your jobs went to China, they went to Mexico, we can bring them back, you know, make the darn iPhone in the U.S., make the cars, you know, do that stuff in the U.S., that, that can't happen? You, you could try. Uh, most of the measures you would use or that I heard uh, Trump propose would, would be ineffective and counterproductive. Starting a trade war is a really lousy way to help out American manufacturing. But let's say you got the environment exactly right and manufacturing activity did come back. You know, mm-hmm. we're seeing a little bit of reshoring of manufacturing already. That's not to say that we're seeing a huge increase in manufacturing employment. The factories that were building and spinning up these days in the country just don't have a whole lot of uh, labor inside them. To me, they look more and more like data centers, which are these huge operations full of machines and a small number of pretty very well-trained, very well-qualified, pretty well-educated people, you know, manning the control booth. I didn't hear, though, either the media or the Democrats coming back at Trump and saying, well, we can bring the factories back from China and Mexico, maybe, but there aren't a lot of jobs left in those factories. That's not really a, a, a hopeful message, is it? It's not really a positive <laughs> counter to to the Trump argument. So it, this, this is a really difficult argument to make. And one of my frustrations is that the communities that I hang around in of economists and technologists, we were not helpful in this discussion. We have concentrated for too long on just extolling the virtues of tech progress and trade. And it's true that those are good things in aggregate, but we were not mindful enough of the people who feel left behind, um, betrayed, marginalized, that, that, or, or ripped off by, by the world that we're creating. And figuring out how to have that conversation is one of the great pieces of homework. Mm-hmm. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Andrew McAfee from MIT, co-author of the book, The Second Machine Age. One of the things that you've always said to me when we've talked about um, increasing technology in our lives and, you know, fewer sort of of these classic old school middle class jobs was that, you know, education was going to be the key uh, to having a really good job in the future. And um One thing you see is that uh, Donald Trump won non-college educated whites by about 40 points. I mean, just like a margin that blows you away. Do you feel like that kind of coming together of economics and education was in some ways the thing that got uh, Donald Trump elected? Uh, Yeah, it feels like there were a few factors going on. One of them is certainly this moment that we're at 
where the recovery from a really bad event that left a lot of people feeling like the system was rigged against them and the elites were enriching themselves and deliberately leaving everybody else behind, the recovery from that has been slow. It has not lifted all boats equally. And I think that creates really fertile territory for the kind of arguments that that Trump was putting out there. The, The question about what do we do about it? How do we have a productive discussion? What will actually improve the lot of those people is unfortunately a difficult, really complicated, you know, ambiguous, nuanced conversation. And the mood does not seem to be for those things. The mood seems to be for simplicity and for clearly identifying the problem and a simple solution. What is the solution for for those voters who felt like you know, boy, they'd been displaced and they couldn't find the jobs they wanted. And and if you look at um, Trump voters, many of them said in exit polls that they believed the economy was fair or poor. Well, the unemployment rate is under 5%. So speaking to what you said before, we kind of have like two parallel economies going on. That is not how the economy feels to a lot of people. So what do you do? Yeah, and Kara, you and I have talked about this before. Uh, the playbook that that Eric and I advocate is all about trying to increase rates of innovation because business dynamism, unfortunately, is on the decline in America. It is about doubling down and, and improving our infrastructure, which actually would be a source of the kind of classic, you know, brawny jobs that that middle class Americans really. Uh, long for. Uh, It's about liberalizing immigration instead of clamping down on it because immigrants are clearly a source of entrepreneurial and business energy in the country. Um, It is about uh, investing more heavily in basic research. The, The problem is I've already just laid out kind of a long argument and one that is not guaranteed to immediately have us start winning so much we get sick of winning. So I I understand how a a really, really clear, simple argument repeated forcefully enough uh, makes a difference for a lot of people. I think the actual environment is is more difficult and and much more murky. Uh, When we last spoke uh, a couple months ago, you used the phrase, I think, profoundly optimistic when you were talking about the possible effects of automation, increasing automation. When you look back on that comment, do you still feel that way? I'm a little bit less optimistic, I have to be honest with you. I am. I still firmly believe that these two tectonic forces of globalization and tech progress are reshaping the world in aggregate for the better. However, that doesn't mean that they leave everybody better off at every point in time in every aspect of their lives. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in their capacity as folk who want to live by the good old-fashioned labor bargain and offer their labor and get a good life in return, that bargain you and I have discussed has become a lot chillier. I am less optimistic than I used to be that we can find a way to talk about that bargain in a better way and to restore that bargain uh, quickly enough to to satisfy people. Uh, If we don't, then we're going to do, I think, really misguided things like become protectionist, clamp down, turn our backs on the world, uh, maybe start doing things like banning flavors of technology that we don't like. That's happened in the past, and I think it would be a terrible shame. What do you think that a Trump presidency means for innovation and, uh, you know, an entrepreneurship and inventiveness, all the kinds of things that you study and, and you sort of see around you all the time? I, I find that an almost impossible question to answer at this stage. Uh, I, I, 
I can't get inside Donald Trump's head. That is one place I absolutely do not have access to. Uh, he, he's been pretty consistently pro-business, at least in the way he talks about it. But as a test case, I, I don't know what's going to happen if his basic constituency, you know, the, these, these classic white, less educated Americans, start to not like driverless cars, for example, because they can see that it's going to put truck drivers out of business. I, I, I honestly, I have no idea which way a Trump administration would break on that issue. You talked about um, that there's a lot of things we would have to do to, uh, you know, take the people who've been displaced and, and make sure there's a education and training and all that. How long is it going to take for us to get to the point where things are better and people don't feel betrayed and angry and sort of left out of the economy? That's that's a super difficult question to answer. And the only answers I, I can come up with are kind of a long time. We have had how many months in a row of consistent job growth in the country, at least five or six years worth of steady month-by-month job growth, our unemployment rate, even if we measure it imperfectly, is really low. Our economy is growing much more quickly than any other economy in the rich world, and yet we have this profound sense of unhappiness and resentment going on. So what would actually need to happen for the, the mood in the country to shift uh, that's that's kind of difficult for me to imagine. And how quickly could that happen? Um, long time. Andrew McAfee is co-author of the book, The Second Machine Age. He's a founder of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Andy, thank you so much. Kara, always a pleasure. McAfee talked about a yearning to go back to a time when factory jobs were better and more plentiful, which, by the way, he doesn't think can happen. But a lot of people remember when those jobs were their reality. Bill Berry used to teach at the Community College of Baltimore County, and he's written about the history of Sparrows Point Steel Mill, which is not far from Baltimore. Back in its heyday, it employed 31,000 people. And he says a steelworker could bring in $140,000 a year. It was a great moment in America because you had good pay, uh, protection, and it was a tough job. But most jobs are tough jobs. Many people would start when they were 18. And I often said that the pattern could graduate from high school on Friday, get married on Saturday, go to work at Sparrows Point on Monday. And your life was laid out for you. When the factory closed in 2012, the workers suddenly lost the clear path that was laid out in front of them. And Barry says Donald Trump spoke to that loss. What he did was, first of all, appear to be paying attention to them, which Hillary Clinton did not. And he captured their anger and frustration. And the language that Trump uses is almost identical to the language that Franklin D. Roosevelt used as he was running for election about the forgotten man. And I think that the people that I know felt a sense of betrayal, and they felt that they worked hard and had done all the things they were supposed to do, and now they're screwed. 
Barry says that a lot of Sparrows Point workers blame the closure of the plant on foreign steel, and they blame the federal government for not blocking foreign imports. He's spent a lot of time training steelworkers to get other jobs, and some of them have been able to get work. But many are still struggling. There are tens of millions of people in this country I don't believe are ever going to work regularly again. The traditional pictures of the steel industry are people working with the huge flames in the background. And when I show the steel industry today, it's people sitting in a computer panel. And machines are doing all the work. Machines are doing all the work. But if you ask Barry whether he thinks Trump can deliver on his promises to turn old industries around, he's skeptical. I think he's sitting there saying, holy what did I get myself into? It's easy to sit back and criticize people at this time because things are so tough for everybody. And it's easy to be negative, as he has proven how to deal with those situations in a constructive way once you've got the responsibility is a whole different issue. He's about to find that out. Bill Berry is retired now, but he was once director of labor studies at the Community College of Baltimore County. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.